Hey everyone, it is Dan here. This episode of Everything Hurts is a recording of a recent chat we had on Clubhouse, which is a relatively new app that facilitates voice chats in which audiences can easily listen and contribute. In this specific chat, we talk about when in your career you should begin criticizing your field and the potential career consequences of doing so. And we also have some really interesting questions and comments from the audience near the end of the episode. Let us know what you think of this format. If you like it, we'll do more of it. Hope you enjoy. We're going to get started and uh, we're going to have a chat about when you can begin critiquing your research field. And this was inspired by a recent blog post from Moin Sied, and I hope I've pronounced that name correctly. This is a great blog post that um, we're going to link to somewhere. I'm not, I'm not sure how using um, using Clubhouse. And um, we're going to chat about this. Uh, essentially, the blog post was... Um, uh, talking about this idea of when can you begin critiquing your research field? Um, in, in the blog post, we hear a story about um, the author got up and did a searing critique about his field at a, at, a, at a conference and people spoke to him afterwards going, hey, that was really brave what you did uh, critiquing, critiquing the field. And it led to a bunch of discussions, particularly from early career researchers who were like, well, I do see that there are problems in the field, but I don't want to do anything right now. Um, so we're going to have a chat about this. We're going to chat it for about 30 minutes or so. And then what we're going to do is we're going to open up the floor for people to, uh, to have a chat and uh, to tell us what you think. So if during us talking, you have something that you want to share, um, put your hand up. And then we can see that you want to chat. And then at the end, um, we will, um, we will get you on the stage, which is what they call it on, uh, on Clubhouse. And we can hear what you think. But James, your initial thoughts mm. about this idea. Well, this is a wonderful, short and entirely correct little blog post. Um, it's only, it's only a few hundred words. Um, I think I agree with all of them, which is not something that, that happens very often. Um, it doesn't go into if, if, if I had written it and I'm not saying that I could, it would probably be, uh, at, at the very least, a <laughs> a little bit less stark. Um, if I'd written it, I would have proceeded into why this is the way it is. I mean, it's all very well to tell people what to do, perform these functions and your life will get better. It's a different thing to tell them how to feel. So let's start with the actual content itself. Uh, it's a reasonably simple premise. Uh, you have a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's beautifully summed up here. I will act once I finish my PhD, once I get a job, once I get tenure, once I make full professor. In other words, it's the ever-increasing barrier for considering yourself to be someone who makes waves. Now, I would never find myself doing such a, a, a thing. I would never have the temerity, Daniel, to put my head above any parapet. Not, not you or people. People about my opinion. No, absolutely not. No, no. I think it's a uh, in, inherent on the uh, on the, the the modern gentleman to be quiet and meek and uh, generally behave themselves under all. Uh, under all circumstances, um, <laughs> so 
the 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 point being of course is that what what you're saying is uh, i i'll i'm going to go until my interests are vested at which point in time presumably i will have the courage to challenge my own interests you won't uh you can there's there's very few truly radical professors and generally when you use a word like that people expect you to study or publish on something social um, but it's perfectly possible to be a radical, radically anything within research. Um, and I don't mean theoretically. I mean people who stand up to the structures around them and are willing to articulate the state of the reality of the work in a way which potentially inconveniences or annoys others. Uh, I mean, I've seen increasingly, certainly over the last sort of 10 to 15 years, there are a lot more, there's a lot more direct engagement now from PhD students and, and postdoctoral fellows than there used to be. And it's gone hand in hand with new media, new digital media, things that people understand. But the, the headspace here in this article is, it's, it, that is exactly how it plays out. And, um, uh, bonus fun part, a uh, fellow appears to be wearing a rubber horse's head in his profile photo, which is something that I would support under all circumstances. I think you made a really good point in that the new media is facilitating this. So I always wonder, 10, 20 years ago, uh, would uh, you don't hear much about um, PhD students and postdocs making some waves. Um, so right now is such a good opportunity because before, <laughs> it's funny, whenever people are making waves even now, um, I, I saw a, uh, I saw something online that um, it, it was the old argument. Yes, if you really want to make a respectful argument against a paper, you need to write a letter to the editor. Uh, you cannot use social media. We know how that goes down, and we've had that conversation before. This idea that you can't do that, but the thing is, quite often that is that is the only way that you can actually communicate that there is something wrong with this paper or there is something wrong with this field because previously there's a bunch it's it's ch chances are you're you're critiquing the editor's mate and uh, once you send the letter to the editor then you go no nah, we're not going we're not going to post that but now with the new media we have ways of actually doing those critiques both of fields and of papers and it's a great opportunity hmm it's become even more fun during the the plague over the last year. I mean, as I've gradually worked my way out of academia, I I have felt a urgency that I didn't feel before when it came to bad plague research. Uh, this probably has happened half a dozen times. Someone's published or pre-printed something. It isn't any good. Now, in a normal scientific circumstance, that would be irksome, and we could rely on either the gradual accretion of results over time to pound that result into the dust, and then when we finally get to meet face-to-face -face down in 10 years, we could laugh about it and, you know, no harm done. But now we're talking about research that immediately affects public policy all around the world where people are, people are listening and paying close attention. Uh, doctors may be changing the way they practice. Governments may be changing what they fund and what they pay attention to. And suddenly there's this urgency. This crap goes unchallenged and there is no counterforce to this, especially when 
the challenge it's the, the the challenge itself the original paper is a force of social media i mean this is the last year is the only time i've ever heard epidemiology on the news i'll tell you that yeah uh, grab anyone by the ear go down to the shops here at davis and grab anyone by the ear and ask them what an r value is you take three 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 or, three or four hits is going to be all you need so this this has changed now in in that world in that environment James, write a letter to the editor. Oh, sure, mate. I mean, first of all, there may not be an editor in the first place. We're talking about a preprint. Um, second of all, if there is an editor, um, you know, two weeks to read it. Uh, and then as long as possible for people to write some kind of response to it, the original authors, uh, who will, of course, um, have suddenly discovered under the couch the, the, the glowing wisdom on a carved tablet that says every single one of your perfectly logical critiques is wrong. Um, three months, three months later, right now, there'll already be a policy. So it's completely countermanded this idea of, well, just keep, keep it quiet and go through the official channels. N- no. No, because I mean, it's not even, it's not, right now, it's not even coming out through the official channels. So the the idea when you you put on a huge social media blitz for the results of a paper and you 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 see it in the same spaces where it's allegedly inappropriate to criticize it, <laughs> like it's just this this is your playing field too now. This is uh, you've you've suddenly discovered that uh, there's there's interest everywhere for this, and you are out there trying to garner attention for it because you think it's the right thing to do and you uh, you want attention for your enterprise. So that's, I mean, it's so incredibly long dead. And there's, th- these, these things only really stand as, when, 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 there's, when there's social interest, there needs to be a social response. When there's academic interest, an academic response will do, but it's also committing you as an outsider, to formally participate in the carefully managed processes of other people. And it's very hard to get anything critical published within some areas, some fields, some journals. It's very hard. Um, We've had to. I've I've been on a criticism that I was the first author on where we we had to go over the head of the editor who was handling the paper straight to the person who ran the journal group and tell and tell them what was going on. It wasn't a threat as much as this is how we perceive this and we will be discussing it. I invite you to reconsider. I mean that's that's I mean that that to me feels like a <laughs> that that's the one you want to carefully consider. But until then, it's 2021. If it's if it's inappropriate, if somehow this is, I've become increasingly convinced over the years, Dan. Of um, I, mean, I used to mock you. Actually, well, I still mock you, but I used to specifically <laughs> mock you for the idea that there were some channels that were illegitimate for speech and communication. That th- this X Y Z insert the latest way that humans communicate. This is stupid, and. I've come to realize that you were right and that my natural tendency towards making fun of things that I find distasteful and you like was not technically correct. It was just me being difficult. There's no illegitimate outlet for speech. And 
if your audience is a bunch of other scientists and a bunch of other scientists are there, that's the whole question done for me. That's it. It's over. We will use that format, especially if there's no restrictions and it's quicker and it has hyperlinks and you can get it off your plate in half an hour. It takes a phenomenal amount of time to produce some criticism in the first place because you have to be incredibly scrupulous. It's really, really difficult. And then you're taking a risk because if it's wrong, you look like a real tit and you, 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 you feel like you've done, you feel like you've done something truly dreadful. Well, very rare, very rarely have I seen someone doing that, going to the trouble of critiquing and then realizing that they're wrong. But here's the thing though. Anyone that's done that, when they realize they're wrong, they're very likely to go, Hey, I was actually wrong with this thing. It's a ton of time to do this. Yeah, you're very likely to only ever do that once. You know what I mean? What are your thoughts in terms of retaliation? Because that is one of the biggest concerns when it comes to speaking out. I think there really are two different types of retaliation. There is a public retaliation, which often happens on social media. Um, and there's also private retaliation where it's kind of a, if I ever review your paper in the future again, I'm sinking it so hard. I think- from what I see online, especially when it's a very senior person punching down, that the crowd very quickly gets behind the little person, um, especially if they're punching down very hard. So, I think publicly, of course, it's never nice to be called out publicly, um, but the fear of other people just going, hey, that, that response is a bit unfair, may restrict that. But what I think is the bigger worry is the private retaliation of what if this person is reviewing my paper? What if this person is reviewing my grant? What do you think about this, mm. this worry about retaliation? Um, I think it's possible. Uh, I, I've, I've heard of it happening. However, I think that there is, there is a natural academic hesitancy and risk management bias that is relevant here where you think oh if i've if i've done that what if like a lot of the time you what if you know it's like there's four thousand there's four thousand people who are available for a grant panel you're like what if that one person turns up like what if you understood odds motherfucker what if that um so there's 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 that um there is there's a, a tremendous hesitancy towards like, allegedly offending people and the, the other thing that the other thing that happens is that people who retaliate in there's there's certain fields where everything is very well socially policed everyone knows everyone and you you know you're not supposed to speak out of turn you can see it happen at conferences and you realize that uh, the six oldest people in the room all know each other you know, well, they know each other well. They're part of, they're part of a little, uh, they'll, 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 they'll support it themselves out of reflex. They're friends now. There's a social structure. Um, so it's, it's possible. I mean, I have a similar attitude towards the, the fears around scooping Dan. Of course it's possible and it does happen, but I think people's risk perception on it is out of proportion of reality. And 
the the third bias I, I meant to say this a few minutes ago the third bias is the fact that you think other people are thinking about you you think you're 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 living in their head and that they see you the way you see yourself even if a tiny bit even if they remember you just enough uh, unless they're like me and they keep a spreadsheet um, <laughs> because they they need to they need to know uh, who not to trust in future when it comes to assessing work. I had a, a, a case yesterday that I can't tell you any of the details about, but uh, I was asked a question, is researcher X, like, do you know them? And I heard the name and said, are they at that university? And did they publish with someone? This is someone, this is, the paper is 10 years old. The field is not my field, very far from my field or what was my field, right? And I knew who this person was instantly because they published with someone who's on that list. Now, that is only, that's not, it's not, it's not so I can go out and be as like efficient in my vindictiveness as possible. It's because there's a lot of stuff to keep track of and generally really bad science. This, the scary stuff that I still occasionally concern myself with happens in patents. And it happens across labs and it happens with collaborators of that person uh, or, or people who were in that environment or a project that was run by those people, etc. You know what I mean? So I do, I do that, but there's no one else going, Daniel has been a naughty man. I will write his name down. Give that shit six months. They'll never heard of you. I've, oh, I've actually had that happen at a conference. Um, I tore someone's paper up. I mean, it was bad. It was bad. It was very, uh, there was a lot of overlap with the previous paper, about 50%. Um, I thought it was, it was a vintage piece of salami work, you know? Um, so I, t- I tore this paper up on a place where I was a named reviewer, like I was identifiable and I signed that review as well, if I remember correctly. So I, I, I gave, I gave that paper the business. Yeah. Now I met that researcher at a conference in the same, it would have been in the same calendar year between like early in the year and then September in the same year. They didn't know who the fuck I was. They didn't know who I was. They'd like, I never heard of you. You're from Australia. How interesting. I am not. Ha ha ha. Um, I mean, maybe that's a benefit of having a, uh, <laughs> a really generic name. I mean, actually, the weird thing, my surname's really rare. Except it sounds amazingly generic. Well, it's because it's it's a it's Hoffman like if you could spell name. Smith with a Q. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so that's um, you know, it's just anyway. That's 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 far from the point. Dan, let's not get sidetracked on Clubhouse. My God, man, there are people listening. Yes, um, and please the, put your the, hand up if you want being, to ask something in about uh, ten minutes' time. But look, one thing I want to talk it's about- It's very hard, man. It's very hard to even do. It's very hard to even do that calculation. And and like, what risk profile should you accept? Well, a lot of a lot of the time there isn't one. And here's, here's the thing, final thing I promise. You will find out in academia, in industry, in uh, whatever, even within the same, within the same, any professional milieu in general- if you pay enough attention, you will find out where the cliques are located. You may not be in them, but you will probably find out like who carries each other's water. 
If you're liking what you're hearing, there are a few ways that you can support the work that we do when everything hurts. First, you can throw some of your spare change to us each month, $5 to be exact, and you'll get access to a bonus episode every single month. There's also a $1 tier that will get you access to the Everything Hurts newsletter and the occasional bonus episode. Second, we've got a merch store where we sell hoodies, shirts, and coffee mugs, which is our most popular thing that we sell, so you can tell everyone that you listen to the best science podcast in the world. Third, you can tell your friends about the show by sharing links to episodes on social media. James and I love seeing these posts. For links to our Patreon page and merch store, check out the show notes. How do you approach things when it comes to critiquing your own field versus critiquing things that are a little bit adjacent to your field? I mean, personally, I feel a little bit there, – there, there are two factors to consider. I feel more confident critiquing my own field because I know the field. Um, and um, I also have a motivation because I want to try and improve my own field. So, I think it makes a bit of a difference between how these things are actually um, are actually approached. But at the same time, you're more likely to have to have repercussions. But uh, look, I, I think you've raised a really good point with the comparison with scooping. W- one little thing I want to disagree with, though, is with scooping, it's very black and white. You you post the the the, the, the preprint, and people aren't going to scoop you. That that is, of course, someone hears about what you're doing. In, on, on the grapevine and they, they do that scoop that other way. But yeah, look, but how do you approach things when it comes to, um, cause you, when you first started out with critique, uh, it, it was, it was within your field and we, we often, we did, we wrote our letter, our letter to the editor, James, which has been cited a stupid amount of times <laughs> for some weird reason, but we were critiquing something within our own field and it was something we were comfortable with. But then, for you, how did you make that shift? Well, it's not like the people who wrote the original paperwork after with, if I remember, they just failed to notice things about basic signal processing. Hmm. It's like, we have gotten the thing as opposed to the thing cannot be gotten are two separate concepts. And it's not my fault that they can't do fucking basic DSP. <laughs> um, that's what it came down to. Spent an afternoon on it. And now everyone keeps citing the stupid thing. Dan, I don't, I don't care. Look, a lot of, a lot of methodological stuff is transferable. Um, I enjoy the sort of challenge and, uh, I enjoy a change of scenery, basically. Uh, I'm sick and fucking tired of writing the same thing over and over again when it comes to, I mean, if it's like, uh, biosignal analysis, autonomic physiology, um, heart rate signals, cardiorespiratory interaction, like I'm bored to my ass of it, writing the same thing over and over again. Which is probably, which is awesome. I mean, that's not a good answer. That's not a normative answer to your question. Um, I would say in general that it would be, I would have more hesitance about like shitting in my own bed when it came to, when it, when it came to getting into any kind of conflict, low level or otherwise with people who I knew were intimately involved in stuff that I wanted to publish. I think I have been more hesitant about that in the past. Now, you've been very rude, Dan, because Yan has his hand up, and I want to hear what he has to say. I haven't actually seen that, but yeah, Yan, please jump in. So about who who is allowed to criticize, I, I think it's that if you are a stakeholder, if it's something that impacts you, then if then you if you have done your homework, then you are allowed to critique you. You might not even have to be in that field. And a lot of time I feel the most impactful things will come from a collaboration between people who are deeply within the field 
and people who are completely outside. And also, it will be really good that people who are former insiders that now they just no longer really insider that they don't need to worry about losing loss of income, etc. And those type of combination, you really amazing result. Yeah, I I like it, man. That has look for some of the really serious like court case level multiple retractions, sort of high stakes data tomfuckery that I've been involved with has been exactly that. It's been people from a specific field walking my dumbass through it, telling me how it goes and me trying to navigate the kind of mechanics of the serious criticism, understand uh, the statistics and mathematics, if any, is relevant, and try and retrofit what we see about inconsistencies i suppose in that work that i don't understand at all uh you should you should watch me try to uh <laughs> try to un- understand most topics within the life sciences it's like it's like watching a seal learn to play the harp it's just slapping strings oh i see another hand this is fun dan i'm being inclusive yes you can't stop me because i started the room go for <laughs> it go for it it has been a while since I've been on Clubhouse. James, uh, this is Lewis Metzger. Um, I actually get to talk to you in person uh, instead of Twitter message exchanges. Uh, so I'm a, a follower of your work. Um, and this this topic here is quite interesting. I, I wanted to mention what you said about diving into um, the diverse fields of biology and critiquing them. There's usually just so much background information that one needs to have about a given field um, in order to understand uh, what seems plausible and what doesn't. And you know, this provides a you know, significant barrier of entry uh, for most people. And I'm wondering how that's going to change, uh, if it's going to change uh, as access to scientific data uh, hopefully become uh, more prevalent and uh, the process is perhaps a bit more transparent and democratized, especially the peer review process. Hmm. I can't see it changing much because, look, even the access access to data out of context a lot of the time is it's it's not the party that everyone assumes it to be when it comes to the sharing of knowledge. A lot of the time, whatever insight is within something, whether it be for scientific advancement or the perspective of I will beat this paper. I will beat this paper heavily for it has done many bad things. The the knowledge that you need to do that is locked in pretty heavy. Uh, And I've seen too many examples of unbelievably fake data having been published for years in plain sight in reasonably reasonably easy to understand fields where the, the computational barriers to entry are quite low. Um, to to think that throwing that open more is going to result in more in more attention to an issue like that. I mean, I don't I don't mean to be a pessimist, but um, I can't I can't connect them a lot. Uh, what what we cer- what we certainly can say, I think that in the way that fairly simplistic arguments worked in the social sciences and some other areas of the applied sciences. Things around sample size, the relationships between uh, effect sizes and 
significance levels and how you just have the basic trust. Like, how did you pull that result out of that few observations? A lot of the time, things that are that basic are missing from formal biological research. And I have had a little coterie of people who are in no way involved with my work. They're just people that I know who send me papers and go, look at this. Look at this. This is that thing you were telling me about. Yeah, it is. It is that thing. <laughs> it is. You're, you're starting to spot it. Yeah, you got, you've got a sample size of uh, four. Well, cell size. You've got a cell size of four there and a cell size of six there. Um, and yeah, yeah, you found one. That, that cell size of six was actually a cell size of 15 where they threw nine of the observations away, it turns out. I mean, that, that's, that's where it's at a lot of the time. Um, and you know, you can, you can let it bug you or you can try and help the people who are within that community try and understand the very basic substrata of what's presented in front of them. It's good fun. I, I, I like being sort of semi retired from having to do this all the time because people just write and I help them and then it goes away and no one ever threatens to sue me. <laughs> I think these things. I think these things are going to take time because quite a lot of the time when it comes to sharing data and sharing scripts, it's just signaling. It's either A, signaling or B, doing the bare minimum because the journal requires it. I was reviewing a paper a couple of weeks ago and I was like, oh, gee, the I'd really love to see the data, but it wasn't there. But then they had a reporting checklist and buried within the reporting checklist was them going, oh, yeah, the data's here. And there was a link to the data. Um, but of course, the data didn't work because the actual, uh, sorry, the link didn't work because it was, uh, they didn't unlock it from being a private file. Um, so, it kind of shows that for a lot of people, um, they're either, they're, they're, not taking, they're not taking this <laughs> I, thing. I have done that twice. Yeah. It, it's a common, it's a common mistake. I did, I, did eventually, I did eventually unlock it, of course, but it's just the fact that people generally don't notice. I was so close to clicking request access, which would have immediately revealed <laughs> that I was the reviewer, but I didn't do it. So, I basically, when we, in the response, I'm going, hey, like before I- re- before I continue reviewing, I have to actually have a look at the data. But people are doing this, are doing the bare minimum type of stuff for actually reproducing the sort of data that we need. So it's going to take a lot of time. Um, but hey, I mean, I'm, which is not a surprise, I'm a little bit more hopeful than you for how quick this will happen. Other things have changed quite quickly when it comes to, I mean, this is something we didn't even hear of five, 10 years ago. So the fact that this is being discussed in most places are going, hey, you need to actually show where the data is. I think in a little bit longer, um, uh, it's, it's not going to take too much more time where people are actually taking this thing seriously. And now we have more and more journals who have a, um, a data editor, somebody who actually says, yes, here is the data, here is the script, and it does what it says it does. They don't comment on whether it's good. But they just comment whether it's accessible and whether the data, whether you get the same sort of um, results from what was described as the paper. But- well, that that is the traditional definition of reproducibility. Yeah, and it's becoming it's becoming easier to do, and it's becoming it's, it's becoming more straightforward to perform. Um, there was a movement a couple of years ago. I wish this had persisted, uh, where journals were just being written into Jupyter notebooks. Um, I don't know what happened to that. I'd love it if that was still going simply because the entire thing's generated dynamically. That was dope. Dan, I'm adding more people to the conversation. Here's Evan. Hey, Evan. Yeah, this is super interesting. Um, I, I mean, I think it's interesting how scientists have a much different perception of how rigorous the scientific process is than the general public. Um I sort of whinge when people use this phrase, believe science, 
I think that's <laughs> very popular to say now. Like, believe, like, believe what about it? <laughs> it's like believe. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, people use perfectly scientific methods to gain political power. So I, I don't see what people mean when they say unscientific. But that's a whole different thing. Um, I guess uh, there was a recent result from. Um, uh, well, not super recent. There was a recent retraction of a paper on uh, myron fermions, which are this like interesting excitation in certain uh, condensed matter physics systems. Um, and it was retracted because somebody had sort of excised some data because they thought it didn't, it sort of crowded the plot. And, and then, uh, yeah, the response has been interesting um, in that I think most condensed matter physicists are saying something to the effect of, well, the experiment is hard. Like, what are you, what are you supposed to do? And I think a lot of the funding agencies are going, I, this isn't working. We're never going to get it to work. Uh, yeah, it's all, all in all kind of disappointing. I wanted to keep getting funded because it's interesting and beautiful work, but it's funded because people expect a commercial return on it. And I think science should just sort of be funded for, because it's science, but I would. So <laughs> that's an interest. That's an interesting retraction. You've actually managed to come up with a retraction that I haven't heard of, which is kind of awesome. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this? This this sort of uh, what 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 was the redaction that was involved here? So this is. Um, presumably this is, is this physics or astronomy. What are we, what are we, what are we, what are we talking about here? So it's a physics paper. Um, the, the original paper was from the group of Leo Kauenhoven at Delft. And then, um, it was celebrated as this huge result, um, cause Myron fermions are sort of the, I mean, it's a Nobel prize worthy result in our, in our field. Um, it's a, it's a particle, which is its own antiparticle, um, not that it's a new particle, but it, it's sort of an effective excitation of a, of a system, kind of like a bubble is, is like an effect of water, but it's not literally a, like a, a piece of water. And you could say like, oh, a bubble moves up, so it's its own isolated unit that behaves opposite the direction of gravity. We do that kind of thing a lot, but any, anyway. Um, so uh, the... The problem is that it's very hard to actually detect these particles. So you detect signatures of them. Um, and a while ago, somebody uh, from Microsoft proposed a signature that you could see. And then somebody measured the signature in the lab and went, oh, we got it. And then months later, a theorist at, Pitts at uh, Pittsburgh said, no, you didn't like the signature is not actually strong enough. And also the signature looks weird. You didn't detect what you thought you did. And and now everybody's just throwing their hands up going, oh, oh, God, the whole field is dead <laughs> because of this one result. And you're never for, for whatever reason, one result led to uh, um, a total discouragement of the entire field. Is that common in your field? Yeah, this is this is the flip side of trust but verify, isn't it? When you skip out the verify thing and you invest too much trust, eventually the ass falls out of the whole enterprise, and we all have to have a cry. What was the question, Dan? Is this is this a is this common in your field? This sort of reaction to a single result. I think it is because we're used to being the kind of science where, like, 
either your your error bars are so small you don't have to plot them, if that makes sense. We don't use p-values. We just our argument is generally, oh, look at the plot. So that's um, refreshing. This isn't the this isn't the case. This isn't the case in high energy physics where they have sort of error bars on their error bars. But you know the the way we do things is either you show a, a gloopy plot which has some features, and another gloopy plot that's a result of simulation, and you go, oh, look how similar they look. Or you you have a model that's extremely precise, and then you overlay the points, and you say, look, it it's obvious. So that that's our usual methodology. But but I think this disconnect. Um, the, the reason why nobody caught this is just because the theory is just so far out there and the experimentalists, I, myself being an experimentalist, are really crappy at the theory. You have to dedicate your whole life to understanding the theory and you have to dedicate your whole life to being able to do the experiments. So these things are just kind of at the edge of what we know how to do. So it just leads to papers that throw a result out and people go, oh, we got it. And then some theorist is like, nah, you, you don't. So it's, it's just retractions working in a different way, I think, than, than they uh -huh. have. In, I don't think anybody was behaving in bad faith here. I mean, besides the like cutting data out, which is really ugly, but I mean, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of it. It's, it's a bit scary. Well, if if you made me guess within uh, the culture that I'm familiar with in in that area, I would say that confirmation bias has never met a person that was smarter than it, and the it's 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 so it's so often the case. You can you you look right past what you don't wish to see because you know it's there and that's the end of the story. So look in 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 general, I mean, even for me, and I I I have ascribed bad faith to a lot of things sometimes professionally, but even even I never jump to you you did that on purpose. It's almost always you screwed up. And even the level past you screwed up is you screwed up and you didn't really have you you didn't you didn't even have the diligence to check whether or not you screwed up. So um we use one sync as a verb in that context, actually. A paper is one synced when you can't figure out which of the inconsistencies are the inconsistencies because they're interrelated to each other. So uh I don't think I don't think physics is I don't think physics has ever been that bad because um I think someone would yell at you in the first 30 minutes. <laughs> There's been a lot of talk about uh, psychology having uh, having physics envy and this idea that uh, so much of what, about what we're doing is is for us trying to be like a, a legitimate science like physics. So it's always interesting to hear perspectives from other fields. You can get so wrapped up in your own research field. Um, so hearing other stuff, and, and that's what tw Twitter's great for because stuff pops up from different fields. You're like, gee, that's interesting. And we can learn a lot from what uh, from what other people are doing. I think because quantum computing right now is being commercialized and these Majorana fermions are, you know, very like they're kind of the holy grail for quantum computing. I think because the money is coming in, it changes timelines and changes incentives. So that may cause people to react differently to something. So I think everybody has this idea of a short timeline in mind because that's what the VCs ask for. But science is sort of built on a long timeline and people just come in with different expectations and different hopes. And then when something happens, there's disappointment and confusion. And we're sort of back. I think 
I think science gets weird when a lot of money gets involved. And then the second thing is that um, I think fields for a long time have had this math envy or physics envy. Uh, there's the reason I, I have nothing against Lacan, but I mean, Lacan has this thing where he talks about the algebraic <laughs> topology of the sexes or something like that. I'm not, so I promise I'm not a Sokol affair guy. I, I like that. I, I like that stuff. And I think he has good points, but I can also see that sometimes there's, you know, this happens. <laughs> Evan, you bring yeah. up an interesting point though. Um, about commercialization or expected commercialization of research and yeah. uh, you know how that affects both the research integrity but also the ability of perhaps people participating in industry to critique their field and yes. you know what i noticed so I, I spent uh, a number of years in uh, the now non-existent novartis infectious diseases division uh which they closed down a year and a half too soon uh, before COVID. But um, one of the really interesting things that I did not expect when working there is that uh, research, reproducible research was greatly valued in-house because, you know, here you are as an individual contributor, or maybe you're a group leader, and you're generating data that various different project teams depend on to move forward. And so yeah. it was almost as if there was a, um, a different selective pressure that is there was really no incentive to overhype one's results or uh, to let confirmation bias be controlling because th these had to be real results in order for people, you know, colleagues to build upon them. And because the incentivization structure was to a large extent team-based, one was responsible to their team members for you know, providing a solid basis for continuation of a project. And so, right. you know, this isn't discussed a lot. And, you know, one of the other interesting things is that um, in, in the process of doing our work, we became aware of a number of academic papers, uh, and in fact, not just papers, but entire laboratory outputs uh, mm -hmm. that uh, did not repeat for fundamental reasons, let's just say that. And... <laughs> <laughs> You're not you are not the first commercial biologist I've heard say that. Let me just confine myself without telling tales out of school. You are not the first person who has gone into that environment and then I've and yeah, it gets worse. Uh, we'll have to do a whole separate podcast on um uh there's like you know the, the things we might have thugged up. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Please continue. No, no, no. So, since being out of academia, I would just say I, the longer I've been away from being a grad student or a postdoc, the more I feel comfortable saying what I really think. Um, and I'm not saying that industry is for everyone. And I think that an equilibrium, uh, you know, an, an ecosystem where industry and academia and nonprofits and government uh, all uh, use their strengths for you know greater projects than any one of them can produce is a good thing. But I do think that having that distance from one's training does provide uh, a certain uh, you know space, and also the fact that I'm I'm not trying to get tenure, and I'm by and large not competing for grants with you know the good old uh, girls and boys network. Uh, yeah, might anger in the process. But anyway, it's 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 something that that has crept up on me. Uh, and then your your choice of this topic really uh, made me think, well, yeah, that's actually that's true. One does develop some distance and ability to critique. 
Mm-hmm. Completely agree. How are we doing on time, Dan? Yeah, we're good. We got a couple more minutes, so if anyone else wants to jump in, superb. That would be uh Yes, this is actually the time that we set aside to rather than um, <laughs> rather than uh, getting in our own way and interrupting ourselves, which is great fun. I mean, this is any I I I love it when the little hand appears. I don't like much about this app. Honestly, I think the the interface is is poorly designed. I continually find myself wishing for new functions, but I I do get a certain kind of this will be fun feeling when the little hand goes up. It's uh, that's good. There's some, there's something there's something nice about that. Lewis, I want to ask you. I want to ask you a question. Um, now that you're in an industry, what sort of things? What sort of things do you think academia should adopt more for things that is kind of standard that you see in industry? Um, well, maybe maybe two two categories of things pertaining to. Uh, well, do you mean research practices? Yeah, research practices. How, how we do okay. research? Um, you know, I think that having method sections that are detailed enough for someone, quote unquote, skilled in the art to reproduce the work, uh, especially if it's experimental work, this is really valuable. And um, it's not been helped by most journals uh, asking for a condensed summary of the method section in the main paper and then providing space for the methods in the supplemental. But a lot of people don't make use of these supplemental methods as much as they could. And when I've been asked to review papers, if I don't think that the paper could be reproduced by someone skilled in the art, you know, I recommend rejection or provisional rejection until the methods are clear enough that someone uh, someone could reproduce that work. Because it just it, it it's so helpful to not only other academic labs, but is really important for people in industry because we use these papers as a departure point for all sorts of research. And so it's really important that the work be reproducible. And when we do come across ones that that are reproducible and have good method sections, you know, we're always very, you know, it's it's always a, a good feeling. And it also makes me think, well, you know, that taxpayer funded research, uh, you know, that money was well spent because now we can use this as a departure point. Um, you know, that's one thing. And then, you know, the other thing just comes, uh, um, in terms of, of training, uh, PhD programs, and I suppose many thesis-based master's programs are generally, uh, um, at the end of the day, a single contributor effort, right? Or a single primary contributor, you know, the person writing their thesis or doing the work that supports their thesis. But in industry, really, it's a decentralized group effort. Uh, at least that's been my observation, both in big pharma and small biotech. And I think uh, um, socializing graduate students to understanding that that they're not going to be single contributors, you know, in many different possible career trajectories they may approach is really important because that I think that is undervalued in some corners of academia. And it's it's just essential for getting things done in an industrial setting, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, uh, the 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 team focus, like even as someone who doesn't have to produce science anymore, uh, the headspace difference when you move into industry. It's only people continually emphasize out loud, and everyone works towards. I mean, I'd like to think our company culture is okay, but. I'm continually asked, what help do you need from me? 
um, which is always is like I, I I cast my mind back to doing science for money at a university, <laughs> and it was almost always the other way around. It's like, when are you going to send me? Was usually how sentences began, and the reply was never sufficient. Maybe I was just a bad colleague. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can vouch for that. This inspired <laughs> this inspired me to think that a future topic should be about the. What people do not understand about industrial, because industrial is, or, or even the startup, which is different industrial, but also or is also academia. That is actually, I mean, I had a lot of super amazing things and also had some ugly things. But the thing is, there's so much misconception uh, and perception from people who are outside of the, the industrial or startup. So therefore, that like um, a dialogue about like what people in academia that. Should know about industrial or like what you wish if you were in academia that you had known about industrial or or the or, or, or startups. That I think that would be a wonderful topic. But the other point is um earlier, James, you you mentioned that two two things really amazing that I I think a lot of scientists will be benefit from it if we have a talk about that. One is that you said people's risk perception is. Hugely out of proportion of reality, and also you mentioned that a lot of time people's attention on themselves is just like in a way that is distorted. That because the world is not always looking at you, and, and, and that so I I couldn't quite repeat what you said, but then those two points are very important. That it really pertain to a lot of uh, uh, things about motivation and like why why people in academia or in science choose. To do or not do certain things that I think is, and also I think is a very amazing topic that should should be discussed in the future. Yeah, yeah, um, I, yeah, that's just something I I feel like we could we could go into a tremendous amount of turgid detail on. Um, yeah, it's just everything's. There, there are a lot of consequences of scale everywhere, and that really is one of the on a personal level. That's one of the things that is actually I've always taken a great deal of comfort in that, in the fact that a lot of the time, a lot of the time, people aren't looking, and unless you really make them look, it's like the idea that passive attention within this context will come to me. And that I should fear it is—I'm not even sure where it came from. Maybe we'll get round to that, yeah. Dan. I kind of like that. It's—it's—it's it's, it's cute. It's a bit this. I mean, it's a little bit nihilistic. We are all nothing, but you know, you should—you should be used to that if you've heard the podcast more than once. Ah, oh, I gotta go. I got a, a five o'clock meeting here. What? This has been this has been fun. We should do this again sometime. Hey, thanks for letting me drop in. Yeah, of course, enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks, Lewis. Thanks, uh, thanks, Yan, and um, also thanks to Evan. Thanks, Evan, who was there before. But yes, let's um, let's wrap up. Thanks all. Have a good evening, morning, wherever you are.